When we share someone's story here on The Diaries, the episode might end, but their story doesn't. So many of the people we've talked to, they've gone on to do incredible things. They have epic adventures and make significant impacts in our community. Over on Diaries Plus, we're catching up with some of our former guests to see what they've been up to. I recently sat down with Connor Ryan, a Lakota professional skier from our Sacred Slopes episode, who's been knocking out groundbreaking projects ever since the episode aired. It's really incredible. We had a great discussion about the impacts he's made, what keeps his fire burning, and taking ski lessons as a pro skier. Here's a snippet of the conversation. All the source of joy that I use to fill my cup to be out in the world doing positive things comes from my relationship to the outdoors. And so I've really focused on like, wow, like there's so much power if I can give one person the relationship to the outdoors that that I have through skiing. And maybe that will have as profound of an effect on them as it's had on me. To listen to the full episode, use the link in the show notes to subscribe to Diaries Plus today. Yeah, you get more shows, but you also have a peace of mind of powering what's out there right now, keeping us moving forward, keeping this community together. So thank you for everyone who supported and everyone who's going to support. We appreciate it. In the Frank Church River of No Return Wilderness, the old timers like to tell stories about what they call getting franked. Getting franked means waking up midsummer to a foot of snow on your tent, or catching a pika stealing the sweaty socks you'd left out to dry, or losing your sleeping bag to a rapid on the middle fork of the Salmon River. I've gotten franked a few times myself. There was the unplanned overnight after a wrong turn coming down from an old fire lookout. The six-mile stretch of trail with 300 down trees and 4,000 feet of elevation gain. And the time I became the first person in a century to get Giardia from the creek that runs through the field station where I lived for 10 weeks. The Frank Church River of No Return Wilderness is 3,700 square miles of mountains, rivers, and meadows in central Idaho. It's the largest contiguous wilderness area in the lower 48, unbroken by roads and barely broken by trails. The Frank is dry, steep, and rocky, dotted with sagebrush and ponderosa pine. In the summer of 2016, I lived and worked at Taylor Wilderness Research Station, a 64-acre slice of private property in the dead center of the Frank. The Taylor Station is run by the University of Idaho, where I was a graduate student studying science communication. For the first time in my life, I got paid to do creative work outdoors. Beyond that, it was a project of my own design. I would conduct research and write an essay collection exploring the unique ecology and culture of the Frank. I was one of six students stationed there for the summer. We were isolated from the rest of the world. A single mail plane connected us to civilization, coming and going every Wednesday. Every other day of the week, we'd scatter by 10 a.m. to fish, hike, or collect data for our research projects. But Wednesdays, Wednesdays were Christmas. We'd wake up and sit around the kitchen table, drinking coffee and eating pancakes, ears perked for the hum of the mail plane in the distance. 
When the plane landed, I'd eagerly collect a postcard or two, at least a couple of letters from friends, and occasionally a real treat, like a package from my sister full of chocolate and new socks. I was almost always surprised by the contents of the mail plane, but I could count on one constant every other Wednesday. A small box with an even smaller notebook inside, full of David's delightfully sloppy handwriting. David and I weren't new to being pen pals. Even before I went out to Taylor, we lived nearly 3,000 miles apart for three years. He lived in Boston, while I lived in a ski town in central Idaho. He wasn't my boyfriend, but I wouldn't have called him a friend either. We had met on the first day of college almost 10 years earlier, and our relationship oscillated between will-we-won't-we vibes and long periods of not interacting at all. For most of college, I was hopelessly in love with him, and pretty certain that he was in love with me too, despite the fact that he was in a committed relationship with his high school sweetheart. David would never admit that he loved me, and I couldn't move on, so we stopped hanging out. The winter before I went into the Frank, I made an impulse decision. After not speaking for three years, I sent David a handwritten letter asking him to spend a week in Utah with me that spring. The only thing stranger than my invitation was his reply, texted the same day he opened my letter. Yes. In the two months between my invitation and his arrival, we stayed in touch by snail mail. David bought a pocket-sized moleskin notebook that we mailed back and forth half a dozen times, creating an artifact of our reminiscence and our anticipation. We explored Utah in my old Subaru. We camped, hiked, and soaked in hot springs. David taught me to climb just outside Logan on a perfect, crisp, bluebird day. He told me to trust my feet, and I slowly became more confident in the stability of my toes on tiny holds. I started to feel more secure in my relationship with David, too. I felt just as safe lying next to him in my tent as I did when he belayed me. We spoke openly about our feelings, past and present. For the first time, I didn't have to figure out what he was thinking, because he just told me. He had been in love with me in college, too. Our trip to Utah affirmed every feeling about David I had had for years. I was certain that we understood each other in a way that very few people do. And that I really, really loved him. At the end of our trip, I dropped him off at the airport on somewhat ambiguous terms. We weren't together, but I felt hopeful that we weren't saying goodbye. We kept in touch after he returned to Boston, though our writings to each other took on a different energy. With no rendezvous to anticipate, our exchanges became slower, less interesting. Three months later, when I got to the Frank Church, I continued to trust my feet. Climbing just a couple of times in Utah was enough to reframe what I believed my body could do. I crawled into caves looking for pictographs and artifacts, zoomed up rough terrain for a better view of the valleys below, and waded across swift creeks. It felt good to traverse the Frank confidently, looking up at my surroundings instead of down at my boots. Trusting my feet became the guiding principle of my outdoor pursuits 
and my work as a writer. It gave me faith through difficult processes and uncertain outcomes, and the courage to take risks knowing that I could weather whatever came next. I'm not sure why David and I kept writing to each other while I was in the Frank, but I loved pulling the small box that held our moleskin notebook out of the big, mustard-yellow mailbag every other Wednesday. I saved it for last every time, waiting until after I'd examined each of my letters, postcards, and packages twice. I'd throw the notebook into my day pack, find a quiet place down by the river or up on the ridge, and crack it open, reading as slowly as I could. From there, I had a week to reply, to gather my response, and to try to express my experiences in the deep backcountry. Tuesday nights, I'd put on my headlamp and walk down to the mailbox at the edge of the airstrip. I felt closer to the outside world when I reached into the dark mailbox, almost as though I could touch my normal life if I stretched just a little. A few Wednesdays into the summer, I pulled the notebook out of the mailbag and read. The first few pages of David's letter were standard. A description of his recent trip up Mount Rainier, a few paragraphs about his progress toward finding a new apartment, and then an unpleasant surprise. A question about where I saw our lowercase r relationship going. I spent the next six days deciding how truthful I wanted to be. I knew the best way to keep David around was to lie to say that I was up for anything and happy to keep all this unlabeled and undefined. But that wasn't what I wanted. I wanted him in my life. I planned to graduate in less than six months, so it didn't seem so unreasonable that we might live in the same city soon and give ourselves a chance to be happy together, once and for all. I trusted my feet and replied truthfully. Let's give this thing a shot, I wrote. It's been 10 years of tension and uncertainty. Why not try? David didn't respond right away, and I knew what that meant. When his reply came a week later than usual, I wasn't surprised to read that he did not want to be my boyfriend. Our relationship suddenly felt just as one-sided as it had when we were in college. I'd expected to get franked by the mountains and the rocky trails and the deep stream crossings. I didn't expect to get franked by David, too. Getting dumped when you live in the middle of the Frank is not like getting dumped in the front country. For starters, there's no one new to meet. The closest town is a 35-mile walk, and I'm using the term town generously here. Most maps label Edwardsburg as simply a populated place. Second, Taylor's a dry campus, which is totally fair. Drunk students and vast wilderness areas don't mix. On top of that, there is no Netflix streaming and all of your food is rationed. Even if you had a pint of ice cream, no heartbreak would inspire you to eat it all in one sitting. All of the classic, lazy ways to manage my feelings were wholly unavailable. These had been my go-to strategies when David had broken my heart in the past, which was probably why I never seemed to get over him. It sucked not being able to wallow the way that I wanted to. Like any other day in the Frank, 
There was nothing to do but hike. The other students and I had been planning a five-day backpacking trip up to some alpine lakes. We decided to depart that Wednesday afternoon so that we wouldn't miss out on the mail plane and our grocery resupply. After reading David's letter, I was ready to go. Everyone else needed more time to work through their mail, so I put on my boots and pack and grabbed my trekking poles. I told the rest of my crew that I was taking off early, and I'd meet them seven miles down trail at the confluence of Big Creek and the middle fork of the Salmon River. For three hours, I hiked in a rage, hot with frustration and exertion as I made my way to the confluence. It was well over 90 degrees, and the afternoon sun beat down on me as I tried to make sense of how I'd entered the Frank on such a high and suddenly found myself so distraught. Like a hiker who hasn't figured out that she's lost yet, I'd seen only what I wanted to see and ignored every sign that should have made me wary. A few hours later, my friends caught up to me at the confluence. Together, we got franked, ascending thousands of feet up a relentlessly steep grade and over endless down trees. As we got closer to our destination, the mosquitoes descended in full force, so thick it wasn't worth it to take breaks, even for water. Recovering from getting franked takes grit, resourcefulness, and a sense of humor. That night, cooking dinner in our full rain gear to avoid the dense cloud of mosquitoes, we laughed about the slog we'd endured to get here. The next morning, I slinked off to a boulder perched at the edge of the lake and half-heartedly drafted my reply to David's letter. I don't remember much, only that I demanded to know how he could claim to love me without wanting to be my boyfriend. In the end, it didn't matter what I wrote. The rejection remained the same. My body ached from the strain of the previous day's travel, and my heart ached from a decade of anticipation, only to be let down. I was already dreading the trip back down the mountain to the field station, for the toll the hike would take on my knees, and the toll the monotony of station life would take on my spirit. But in my remaining weeks in the Frank, I found myself leaning into the pain, relaxing into the ache of long uphill hikes and cold evenings in my sleeping bag. There was something strengthening about it, after all. I didn't have that little black notebook to look forward to every Wednesday anymore, but I had my feet under me, and wherever we went, no matter how difficult, I knew I could trust them. There's something powerful about getting franked, to be forced to push through challenging terrain, to manage discomfort and uncertainty, to find a path through the uncharted territory of heartbreak. I built trust in myself and the resilience to suffer and laugh at the same time. In moments of self-doubt, I still look back at my frankings and know that if I made it through then, I can surely handle whatever lies ahead of me. I'm Allison Fowl, and this is my short. Thank you, Allison, for sharing your story. Music today from Bradley Carter, Cloud9, and Brendan O'Connell. The tracks are courtesy of the artists. Jacob Baden and Nice Koto composed our theme song. You can find the links to the artists at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. 
This episode was produced by Cordelia Zars and Becca Call. I am Fitz Call, and you've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in. Mm-hmm.